He is the reason. You know, we say things oftentimes tongue-in-cheek that he is the reason for the season, but he's the reason for life. Open your Bibles with me, if you would. 1 John chapter 2. And while you're doing that, children, you are dismissed. (laughs) Roger and Sarah are teaching today, and they're chomping at the bit. They want to get those kids out of here. That's good. 1 John chapter number 2. Be praying for the children. Be praying for the teachers. Be praying for the lesson. Saying that the Lord would do something in their hearts. Could be the next Adoniram Judson in that classroom. Be praying for him. All right. Now I remember as a uh, as a young teen growing up, and and I would hear my dad from time to time tell me to quit acting like a child, quit acting like a kid, and as I'm as I was growing into becoming a young man, you know, sadly, many parents, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but a lot of parents wait until their kids are adults to teach them how to be an adult. And, uh, you know, when you're 19, 20, 21 years old and you're trying to make adult decisions, you need to know how to do that. And then there are some parents that they give their kids responsibility at an early age. They teach them how to do adult things as a young person, as a teenager, so that when they become an adult, they don't have to hurry up and try to get get out from behind the eight ball. They they teach things. Well, my dad was one of those. I, I had responsibility at a very early age. We do that with our kids. They've been emptying the dishwasher since they were four. We don't like emptying the dishwasher. That's what the kids are for, right? I told my kids when, we, when they were young, they said, well, why didn't mom? I said, look, your mother does not have to do dishes. End of story. When, when you all move out, you can push that job onto somebody else too, but my wife doesn't need to put her hands in the dishwater. That's, that's my desire. She doesn't always let me make it that way, but, but I would have my dad tell me from time to time. He'd say things like, act your age, son. I don't know if anybody else ever heard that. I've heard it many times before, but act your age. When are you going to grow up? And as we grow up, we come to realize that there are certain things that make for maturity, and there are certain things that reveal immaturity. And as we grow and as we learn these kind of things, you know, for example, a man pays his bills, right? You know, my dad would tell me the same thing that... uh, 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 that, that the Word of God tells us, you know, uh, Solomon told his son, neither a borrower nor a lender be, you know, he'd, he'd give me those quotes straight from Scripture, and he'd say, you know, owe no man nothing. And so don't, don't, you know, don't live a life where you owe everybody something. And, uh, but a man pays his bills while children expect someone else to cover the tab, right? You ever have that friend, you'd go out to eat with them, and, and you were always picking up the check, and before too long, you weren't going out to eat with them, right? Uh, or whenever it was their turn to pick up the check, that's when they wanted to split the tab, right? Well, we'll just cover it all. Oh, well, you're going to pay? Well, that's oh, okay. Well, that's all right then. And then they changed their order. Bring me the lobster instead, you know. 
These are childish things. A child blames his reactions on someone else. A man takes responsibility for his actions. There are things that we look at. And so when a man is asked why he did something, he doesn't look and, and respond with, well, because they. You know, how many times have you heard children arguing and fighting and you say, why did you do this? And they respond, well, because they. No, 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 stop. I didn't ask what they did. Why did you act this way? You know, we're responsible for our actions, our reactions. This is also true of Christianity. There are things that we expect from a non-believer, and there are things that we expect from a believer. I, I don't know why it, it boggles my mind why people are blown away that the world acts the way it does. That doesn't surprise me. You know what surprises me, in all honesty, are people who try to take a moral stance on some, some issue when they don't give credence to the Word of God. That actually surprises me. That blows my mind. I, what, what do you have to stand on? It's just your opinion over there. It doesn't blow my mind when non-believers act like non-believers. You know, Jesus even said it this way. He said, you're, you, you act like your father, the devil. Well, I get that. That's their dad. They're going to act that way. But there are certain things that we expect from a believer that we, we would not expect, or we should not expect from an unbeliever, at least. But, you know, it even goes further than that. You know, there are certain things that I understand a young Christian or a young believer, someone who is new to the faith, I understand them acting a certain way. But then when you come over to someone who has been saved, born again by the Spirit of God, and has grown in truth for the last 800 years, I don't understand why they act the same way. And the Apostle John, in his book here, in his uh, epistle, uh, I believe he's writing to his Ephesian believers, the Apostle John sets something out that, he, that it would do well for us to pay close attention to. After all, Christians are not perfect, but striving to be conformed to the image of someone who is. The Apostle sets forth something for us here in this passage. Stand with me if you're able for the reading of the Word of God. 1 John chapter number 2, we're going to read starting in verse number 12. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. If you underline or mark in your Bible, that would be one to underline, highlight, and if you have the ability, place neon signs pointing at it. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. Gracious Lord, would you instruct us this morning? Father, give me boldness that I may speak what you would have me to speak, that I would be able to present uh, in, a, in a very articulate and understandable way the things that you have taught me this week as I've studied. 
that your people would come to know you better or come to know you as their Lord and Savior, as their Master, as their Heavenly Father, the giver of all good gifts. We'll be careful, Lord, to praise you for that because you are so worthy and so deserving. It's in your Son's name we pray these things with thanksgiving and all God's children say, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, uh, you know, being that, uh, that, uh, that Christians are not perfect, and I believe that this is a misnomer, and I believe that people, you know, we, we see things oftentimes, well, people expect Christians to be perfect. You want to know why people expect Christians to be perfect? Because a lot of Christians pretending they're perfect. And we act like we're better than, we act like we, we know more than, and, and I, I'm not saying that, that uh, we don't have something that they don't have. We do have the truth. I understand that. But, beloved, there, the only difference between you, myself, and anybody walking down the street today who does not know Jesus, the only real difference between us is the fact that grace has been applied to our life. And they are still walking under condemnation. But what happens is many Christians, many churches, many pastors, many preachers try to put this air of, of we have things figured out. And the rest of you all are just refuse that's left on the side of the gutters. And so when we have that attitude, think of the Pharisees. Same thing in, in churches today, the Pharisees are still alive and well. You know, you're welcome to come to our church if you dress a certain way. You're welcome to come to our church if you have your hair put a certain way. You're welcome to come to our church if you sing a certain way. You're welcome to come to our church if you drive a certain way, if you smell a certain way, if you have bathed. Well, you know, the bathing thing is, you know. But when, when people walk into many churches, and I'm not saying this about our church, I think we have a very loving church. But oftentimes people will walk into a church setting and, and the folks do this number. Did you see what just walked in the door? Stop that. Of course the people outside expect us to be perfect. We put on a persona that we are. That's not the way it ought to be. But understanding that Christians are not perfect, we should be striving to be conformed not to perfection in the eyes of other people, but we should be striving to be conformed more and more into the image of his dear son. And think about that just from a practical standpoint. Jesus made the comment, he said, when John the Baptist came and he was completely separate, you got upset at him. When I show up and I'm, the, I, I, I'm spending time with the, with the drunkards and the, uh, the publicans, you, you get upset at me. You can't be happy. But when Jesus arrived on, on, the, uh, uh, on the scene here, we have him meeting with the drunks, with the publicans, with the prostitutes, and he's sitting there, he's having dinner with them, he's talking with them, he's communicating with them. You know, there are some people in the, in the household of faith that are so separate, they don't know how to fellowship with themselves, let alone try to reach outside these walls. But there are things that we must learn to do as believers, and some of those things are, are completely set off to the side, and, and they're really left-field ideas. It's like, okay, now that someone is born again by the Spirit of God, we need to teach them how to dress, how to read, how to sing, how to watch. How to, no, stop that. 
so far in the book of John, you know what he's talked about? An immature Christian versus a mature Christian is, is, is seen in their lifestyle, not in what they do, but in how they are and how they treat people. We would understand an immature Christian flipping someone off or cussing someone out. We understand that. They're new to the faith. But as we grow and we're supposed to be conformed more and more into the image of his dear son, there ought to be a time where we gain a little bit more self-control. I mean, after all, the fruit of the, one of the fruits of the Spirit is temperance, self-control. We would understand an immature Christian being impatient with their waitress. You ever go out to eat with somebody and you're like, I'm never going out to eat with them again? Wow. The way they acted, the way they treated, the way they... I have apologized to countless waiters and waitresses in my life. Oh, excuse me, i got to go to the bathroom. I am so sorry. Please forgive us. should have never happened. You know, we would expect an immature Christian to misunderstand and misapply certain parts of Scripture, right? We would expect an immature Christian to not see the importance of reading your Bible and praying every day. But someone who has been born again by the Spirit, you know, it, it, have you ever noticed someone who is fresh into uh, a Christianity? They first get saved, they're excited, their life has changed, it's a new, and they are spending time in the Word and they're reading and they can't read enough of it. And then shortly thereafter, eh, they just read a little less and less and less. You know why that is, sadly? Because they watch the rest of us who have been saved for a long period of time. Our first response is not to go to the Word. Our first response is not to hit our knees. Our first response is not trusting God. Our first response is just to talk about the problems with our friends. And we wonder why new Christians come in, they get excited, and the fire is burning bright, and then before too long, someone's just dumped a bucket of water on it. There's a maturity thing that the apostle is trying to get out here. I'm sure we've all seen this. We've witnessed young believers make mistakes, and we sort of give them a pass because we understand that they're learning. But then as time grows, uh, they, as time goes, they should grow. See, John understands this and realizes that in both situations, the immature and the mature, uh, there is a potential for forgetfulness to set in, which bears the question, what exactly is it that we forget when we act like the flesh. You ever wondered why you acted the way you've acted? I do. I ask these things often. As we get into this portion of Scripture, there are certain problems that arise. And there's a teaching and, and, and a message in these verses, uh, but it's pivotal for us to deal with the problems in the text because as we look at this, there are a few questions that arise. Not just necessarily the question on why, why it is that we forget, what it is that we forget. Not necessarily just that, but there are some questions that arise that we need to kind of handle at the onset. Let's reread this passage so that you can see what I'm talking about. And I'm going to give a little bit of emphasis on certain words so that you can kind of see the direction that I'm trying to take us. He says in verse 12, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning i write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one 
I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you and you have overcome the wicked one. The first thing that I'd like to kind of point out here is the writing versus the having written. I don't, if you note that there's a change in the, in the grammar here, he says in the first four uh, instances, I write, I write, I write, I write. But then he switches in verse 14, I have written unto you. He says it to the fathers, he says it to the young men. <clears throat> and so you'll notice that there are both past and present tense versions of this word for writing. And so when you see these things in Scripture, it's important for us to take a moment and to examine why it is this way. Now, there are several ideas to this, several different ideas. Uh, some will, will say that it has to do with poetic writing and the way that he is writing because it appears that this is a poetic uh, um, uh, attachment. And it, it, what you can see is verses 11 through 14, or verses 12 through 14, I'm sorry, uh, are sort of set aside as a poetical way of writing. And so some people will say that this is why it's being written this way. This is why he's doing this. He, he just doesn't want to sound too repetitive. He doesn't, uh, uh, the, the, the apostle maybe wants to use different wording so that he doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't get boring in his, in his writing. Uh, I'm not 100% sure that that's accurate. Another way is literary form. Some view this as a matter of perspective. And so John was in the process of writing uh, when pen was to paper. So by the time the people had received it, his mind had kind of switched. He's like, well, I'm writing this. But then he's like, well, when they're reading this, they'll, they'll be looking at it because I have written. So maybe he's looking at it as perspective type of a thing. And, and, and when the reader was holding it, the writing would have been past tense. And so in his mind, he switched there. And so they, they kind of uh, view that maybe there's a literary issue with this. Uh, another view is contextual, uh, which uh, write versus wrote um, uh, could refer to uh, what has been said um, and written compared to what is about to be written. So in other words, uh, I wrote the preceding, what you've read leading up into this portion for, uh, for reasons, and now I'm writing the following for these newly stated reasons. Uh, then there's another that, pe uh, that uh, believes that the reason he's saying this, he's saying, I'm writing 1 John, and I wrote the Gospel of John. And so he's trying to attach these and, and say, I had written what you found in the Gospel of John, and now I am writing what you're finding here in 1 John. Personally, uh, as I look at all of this, I tend to agree more with the contextual argument most. Because up to this point, he had said some things in keeping with the reasons that he states here. Your fellowship with the Father, your joy being full, faithfulness of, uh, of God to forgive you, walking and abiding in the light. And he talks about all these different things, bringing us to verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. And then we look, verses 7 through, through 11, on the whole idea of loving your brother uh, versus hating your brother uh, and having the love of God. And so all of it lines up with the reasons that he states uh, as he moves forward in verse 12, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for you for his name's sake. This may be important for some 
but it may not be important for others. But I believe it's key to fully understanding the message that John is bringing to us here. Everything that he has written and what he is getting ready to continue to write, every bit of it was written for the express purpose to remind Christians of who they are, whose they are, what has been done for them. Everything that he has been, uh, has been writing and is being written. You jump to 1 John chapter 5, these things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. And so he's trying to explain everything to them. So it's important to note the, the, the writing here. Uh, he has written certain things in this book, and he is continuing to write certain things as he moves forward, and it all ties in to one and the same purpose. The next thing that, it's in, that is important for us to see is the audience. Now, we need to use caution here. As you read, you'll note that he says little children, he says fathers, and then he says young men. We need to use caution here because there are many points of view to this passage. Uh, I would not be so bold as to say that everyone else is wrong and I'm right. Uh, but whenever there's conjecture, because we don't have the Apostle John telling us why he put little children, young men, fathers, we don't have that necessarily, so we can only surmise based on the context of the passage. And so we need to be careful here. Whenever there's conjecture, we must take care. Some could read this as an indication of various stages of the Christian walk. You have the baby Christian, you have the uh, uh, the young Christian, and you have the older Christian. And so someone who has just been just recently been saved, they're baby Christians. After a little bit of time, they grow, they mature, but they're not quite to that maturity level yet. And then you get to a certain stage and you have arrived. Uh, I, was, uh, I was talking yesterday, I was talking with Jim about this. Uh, I love the 40s. I have so enjoyed 40s. I looked forward to 40, and I, I was so happy when 40 came, and I've just been, this is the life. 40s is great. And he's like, what in the world is so great about 40s? Let me help you understand why 40s are so wonderful as a pastor. When you're in your 20s and you're pastoring, you're just a kid still wet behind the ears, and you have nothing to help me with. When you're in your 30s, you're, in, you, you're just impetuous. and you, you know, you, I remember being hot-headed and jealous when I was in my 30s. It'll taper off. When you're in your 40s, they quit worrying about it. You're old, too. You're like, ah, this guy's old. He's got something to tell me now. And I was like, 40 was wonderful. You turn 40, they quit looking at you. They don't care anymore. Yeah, go ahead, preach, preacher man. That was wonderful. I guess maybe I have made it to the, in that way of thinking, the father stage, right? We've got to be careful with this. They base this on the language that is used, but I believe that there's a problem with this. There are a couple issues with this. First, if the apostle is speaking of progression, then I believe that the ordering would be correct. If you'll notice in verse 12, he says, I write unto you little children. Verse 13, I write unto you fathers. And then a little bit later, I write unto you young men. The progression, I believe, is incorrect. And so he's going from children to fathers to young men. If he was writing in a progressive state where you have baby Christians, young Christians, old Christians, I believe he would have written, I write unto you little children, I write unto you young men, I write unto you fathers. 
So I'm not sure that I would agree with that. I'm not saying it's incorrect. When we all get to heaven, we'll understand it better by and by, and so we'll, maybe we'll find out that I was wrong. But second, another reason that I don't, find, I don't think that that's what he's doing is all through this epistle, you will see the use of little children. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 2. My little children. Look at verse 18. He says, little children, it is the last time. Look at the verse 28. He says, and now little children abide in him. Drop down to chapter 3. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. Look at verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. This is little children. Keep yourselves from idols. All through the book, the, the apostle John is referring to the people that he's writing to as his little children. I believe that the love and the care and the, uh, the heartfelt shepherd here viewed his flock as his little children. Those were his babies. Those were his lambs. No matter how old they were, little ones, old ones, everything in between, they were all his babies. The term little children that is used here is an interesting term. It can actually be translated, my darlings. It's the term that a mother would have used uh, in reference to her little one. That's not my child. That's my baby. That's my, that's my darling. Now, if, if in, in our day and time, we might even uh, use this term to, in speaking to the children. This is something that they would have called. I don't call my child my child when I'm talking to them. I don't say, come hither, my child. That's not how we speak. <laughs> you know, I think some people, they think that we speak in the King James. We don't necessarily speak in the King James. Come thou to me, your father. Now, we don't do that. Come here, honey. Hey, sweetheart, come here. My girl, my boy, come to me. This is what he's saying when he's referring to his little children. So little children describe Christians in general. There's a third reason that I don't necessarily uh, agree with uh, the progressive uh, idea. The blessings spoken of here are not possessions of a specific stage of the Christian experience. It's not only the fathers who have known him. It's not impossible for little ones to be strong and overcome. And so... Uh, this does not, however, remove the possibility of the apostle indicating some kind of age, age progression or some kind of uh, uh, positioning as far as that goes. Just not in the way that we may assume. Little one describing Christians in general, uh, and then out of that you have the two different sets that are broken up, the young and the old or the mature and the maturing. It's important for us to see that. Because so often we come to this, and, and I even have it written in my notes this way, but I really wanted to try to make this point serious. It's not that you have the mature and the immature. You have the mature and the maturing. It's important for us to see that. In the Christian walk, 
in the walk with Christ, we are either maturing into more and more into the image of his dear son, or we have matured into the image of his dear son. Now, this may not be perfect, but I want us to see these things. Now let's look at the purpose. Let's look at the purpose. If you remember, we began today with the idea of mature and immature behavior. We expect certain things from, per, from persons as they grow in their spiritual walk, uh, that there are certain things that they would do or that would, they would, that would become true about them as they grow. They would act more like the person of Jesus and less like the, uh, like the devil. Look at 1 John chapter uh, 2, verse 1 with me again. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation of our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So there are certain things, and as you go down through this, a child of God is someone who keeps the commandments of Jesus. And the more we grow in our maturity, the more we readily accept that. A child of God is one who walks the way Jesus walked. A child of God is one who loves his fellow believer and loves his neighbor as himself. Not yet perfect. Understand that. Not to say that if you're not perfect in these areas, you are not a believer. But a, a person who is striving to become more like Jesus will grow in this. The reason, though, that we forget who we are and whose we are, this passage kind of lays out in a beautiful way what he has done. I forget who I am, I forget whose I am when I forget what has been done. So let's look at just a few things as we finalize today's message. Look with me as what, into what he says, I write unto you little children... Because your sins are forgiven. You know why I act like the flesh? Because I forget what he has done. He has forgiven my sins. This is the primary message of the gospel. John the Baptist cried out, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. In Acts chapter 13, Paul preached of Jesus' forgiveness of sins. This was the whole purpose. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. What exactly is this forgiveness? Whenever we owe a debt, here's forgiveness. And I, I've had people ask me this uh, uh, through the years. And I've come to this conclusion. What is forgiveness? How do I know? Because I've, how many times have you had to forgive the same person over and over and over? Of the same sin over and over and over. And you think to yourself, well, I have to forgive them every single day. I have to forgive them. Well, here's how you know that you have truly forgiven someone. Forgiveness is when you release the debt. The debt is released. I remember I, I totaled my dad's truck. And some of you maybe have cost your parents money through the years. I've cost my parents millions through the years. And I totaled my dad's truck, and he put me on a payment plan to pay him back because it was just stupid. Just stupid. You know. 
And so I had a he had a payment book. He kept track of it, and I paid him so much money every month. I'd bring in, you know, I'd, I was on payment plan. Didn't get my credit score built on that one, but I had a payment plan. And at one point in the day, my dad came to me and he said, "Son, you don't have to pay anymore." I wasn't even halfway done paying that debt off, but he wanted me to know what grace was like. And he said, that debt is forgiven. Now, as an an ignorant, uh, arrogant teenager, I didn't quite get the message. In my 40s, I look back on it and I understand what he did. He said, no longer do you owe me anything. That's forgiveness. And so until the day that I can look at an individual and not think that they owe me an apology, that they owe me an explanation, or that they have to pay me back in some way, shape, or form. They don't owe me anything. Until that day comes, I have yet to forgive. Do you realize what God has done for you? We have sinned against Him, and it doesn't matter. Little sin, big sin, it doesn't matter. You've only told a lie. You've only cussed one time in your life. You've only acted like a fool once. That doesn't matter. Guess what? Every single one of them piles up, piles up, piles up, piles up, and God looked at you, and He said, You don't owe me anything. He paid it for you. You no longer have to... He's not looking for an, I'm sorry... And how many times do I have to say I'm sorry before I'm forgiven? He says, forgiven! Jesus stretched his arms wide and said, paid in full. You know, that's what tetelestai means. It's finished. The debt has been released. Payment has been made. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you. But not just because they have been forgiven, but notice that he says they've been getting forgiven you for his name's sake. His name. Not based on your merit or your character. The Hebrews would view the name not just as a label of who a person is, but because of what that name signifies. I named my children, and my wife and I, we went through name after name after name after name, and I'm really big on name etymologies. I love the study of etymology of names. And we would come to, she'd say, what about this name? And I'm like, that's stupid. Do you know what that name means? It means mountain. I'm not naming my kid mountain. Whatever it was, I don't know. But we came to a few names, and we, we named our children Danielle, Gabriel and Abigail, because I knew what the name meant. And my kids can tell you, they're probably tired of hearing it. I tell them all the time, here's what your name means. Live up to it. Live up to it. The second thing is that we can know him. Notice what he says in verse 13. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him. At the end of verse 13, I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. Don't miss the amazing gift it is to know the Father. To know Him. This knowing, the Hebrew idea of knowing was not merely an intellectual idea. It was an intimate relationship. 
generally this this was reserved for the marriage relationship. Only a wife knows her husband and a husband knows his wife that closely. The closer I get to my wife, you know what happens? The more we start to see things similarly. She keeps me on fleek. And most of the people had no idea what that means. And I didn't either until she explained it. You all can Google that later. Your pastor's on fleek. The fact that I had to say that, all the kids are going, no, you ain't. And I used to tease her and say, you know what on fleek means? It means you're in the know. You're, at your, you're top fashion. You're at the spot where you know what's going on. And so I'd tease her. I'd say, I'm fleeky. She said, that's not how you use it. It's not how you use it. But the more we know the Father, the more we know about Him, the closer we become. You see, the Christian is not simply someone who has a theological knowledge, but has a practical knowledge of how to apply what He tells us. Third, strength to overcome. Notice what He says to the he says, I write in verse 13, I write unto you young men, right in the middle of it, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, look at the end of verse 14, I have written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you and you have overcome the wicked one. You see, John does not mean that you have overcome in the sense of no longer having to deal with sin. Instead, he, he says uh, that you have uh, come to the place where you've overcome the wicked one. In other words, you know what it's like to not give in to temptation. You know what it is to say no now. And you're getting stronger and you're, you're, you're being strengthened more and more and more into the uh, image of Jesus Christ. Uh, is, sin is such a personal struggle. It is ever-present, an ever-present enemy that we must learn how to overcome. And the closer we get to God, the more we know the Father, the closer we are to His dear Son's image, the easier it's going to be, the stronger we become, and no longer do I have to stress about the sin that's going to face me. I have overcome it, and I know I can overcome this one too. I'm able now to look back at some of the battles that I have faced with a heart of encouragement going, thank you, Lord, for walking with me. Thank you for strengthening me in that deep, difficult day. Thank you that, that I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this next one that's coming, I can weather that storm too. He, it is, that gives me strength. When all, uh, when all those people around cannot believe what's going on, and they are just dumbfounded. We're able to stand firm because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He will strengthen us. What an encouragement it is to know that we are walking with the One who can enable us to overcome temptation from the evil one. Yes, there is a requirement to this. I want you to note just a couple things quickly as we make our conclusion here. He says, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. 
Again in verse 14, I write, have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. Something interesting just to kind of point out with this, he doesn't change. When he writes to little children, he says, these things have written unto you to little children or to young men. There's something different. But when he writes to the, to the father, the mature one, because you know him, those who have matured in the faith to the point, I don't have to have a pat on the back. I know God. I don't have to be prodded along to be right. I know him. That's what he's talking about. He says, what more can I say to you who have grown in your spirit? You know, uh, you know, as long as you love your neighbor as yourself, I don't. Let me just remind you, you know God. Thank you for that reminder. That's the only reminder I need. That's what he's saying. And there's a certain point of maturity that he wants us to aim for. And sometimes I think that we think we're there. We think we have arrived until something rears its ugly head and we have to fight again. And that's when he goes to the young men. He says, I, 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 you know, you're right, I know, but then something hits you and you're right back here again. And he says, I write unto you, young men, Increase in your strength. You have overcome. And I know you feel like you're starting over again, but you have overcome. And he will make you strong. But I want you to notice where. He says at the end of verse 14, I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you. Not because you're strong with all your friends around you. Not because your church family makes you strong. Not because your spouse makes you strong. Not because your bank account makes you strong. Not because your, your boldness makes you strong. But because you are strong with the Word of God dwelling in you. The Word of God abides in you. That's the requirement. How can we be empowered to overcome this way? The Word of God. How can I grow and become more mature? The Word of God. And so let's make it practical. Does God's Word abide in you? Now here's how we know it abides. It doesn't just sit in me and I have all of this biblical knowledge. But I stay right there and I rest. And the Word of God is in me and coming out of me. Do you abide in the Word of God or are you simply adding it to your life? You know, I've, I'm good to intermix. You know, we'll watch TV shows from time to time or a politician or somebody will, will use Scripture to try to help prove their point, but the rest of their life is a train wreck. But I'm happy to bring this in. No, let's, we, we can't do that way. Do you take the Word of God as it says? Or, or do you argue with it? Maybe you debate about it. Well, does God's Word really say that I have to do this? Because over here we've got an example. No, 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 no. Stop. Simple Bible uh, 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 
expository lesson here for you. If plain sense makes the best sense, seek no other sense. So many people are trying to read between the lines. But when the Word of God says to do something, and it's pretty plain and clear what it says to do, I don't need to look for a way out. Just do that. I think God will understand. And when the Bible says to do this, I did it. I took you literally at your word. Understand something. When God's word speaks, we have the option to either listen or to ignore and drown it out with our own ideas. So either the word of God abides in you or your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your ideas abide in you. Which is it? I'm not the one that knows. Only you can tell. But never forget James 4.17, which says this, To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. It is sin. So let me ask this of you. Is there a good that you know that God wants you to do? Is there a good that God that you know God wants you to do? And Pastor, I, I struggle with not acting mature. I struggle with not always doing the right thing. Welcome to the club. Welcome. It's good to know I'm not alone. How do you combat it? Number one, you need to remember who you are. You know, one of the things that I pray for my wife and my children daily, God, help them to remember who they are in you. Like a princess. Not the old ball and chain. They see me when I hear God say, oh, I've got to go after the old ball and chain. That's God's princess. That's God's daughter you're talking about. Remember whose you are. You were bought with a price. The very blood of Jesus Christ purchased you. Remember what has been done for you. Now, grow up and live it. That's what the apostles trying to teach. Listen. We can all take a page out of this book. We can all learn something from what John is telling us here. As a church, we must be proactive in helping each other remember our position in Christ. As your pastor, I beg you, I beg you, help me conform more into his image. Help me to be more like him. Ask me from time to time, what would you pray about today? How much time have you spent in prayer? What did you read in your Bible today? How much time did you spend in reading? I want to be more like him. I'm begging you to help me become that. What about you? Do you want to be that? Do you want to be more like him? Or are you happy where you are? We sang just a moment ago, higher ground you want to find higher ground? Or have you gotten as high as you want to get? Lord, lift me up and let me stand. A faith on heaven's table, a higher plane than I have found.
Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Let your prayers rest. Gracious Heavenly Father, we present ourselves to you for inspection. And Father, it's, it's difficult sometimes to admit where we struggle and where we fall short. So Lord, would you call to remembrance the things of our life that we truly know are lacking. Not because we want our sins to be dangled in front of us like a dead mouse in front of a cat, but because we want to become more like your son and we know we're not enough like him. So would you help us to see the areas that need chiseled, the areas that need polished up? Would you help us with that, Lord? We'll be careful to praise you for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.